And today's reading is from the book of Ruth, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated, and we're also going to welcome Ife, who's going to do a spoken word for us this morning. Good morning. So this is just a response to um, Ruth 1 in, in total. It is called Empty. I heard her say she went away full and came back empty. Empty, defined as containing nothing or not filled or occupied. But she came back with me. Does that mean I am nothing, not filled or occupied? empty. I may not have the worth of a son, but surely my company is more than Mara. Has the sweet balm of our friendship only ministered to me? Empty. Also defined as lacking meaning or sincerity. Now I know in me, sincerity is not in want. I chose a mother over a husband deemed an old widow more worthy than a man, and I still do. Where she went, I have followed, and where she remains, I will be. Her people are now my people, and her God is my God. So, El Shaddai, God, as Naomi now counts me as nothing, I pray that you will make me of value as Naomi now lacks meaning, I pray you will reveal her purpose through me. Just as Naomi, I too will count myself as empty, anxiously waiting to be filled and occupied by you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that, Ife. Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Matthew. I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ City Church. I'm really excited and honored uh, to be here with you and to have you all here joining us uh, this morning. Um, Yellowstone National Park was established in, 19, in 1872. Uh, and in 1926, all the gray wolves that had lived in that park uh, had been hunted to extinction. Uh, every single one of them. And for 70 years, there were no longer any wolves within the entire park. In 1995, though, they reintroduced eight gray wolves uh, back into the park. Now, this is a park that stretches over 3,500 square miles. It encompasses the states of Montana and Idaho and Wyoming. 
By the end of 1996, their numbers had grown to just 30. But the impact of these eight wolves on the Yellowstone National Park has uh, had radiating and rippling effects throughout the park and uh, the ecosystem of the park. The elk uh, that were there, without an apex predator, the elk populations, they began to explode and they overgrazed the entire park. The uh, aspen trees, the willows, and various bushes just were reduced to nothing. And because the wolves eat the elk, when they were reintroduced, they began to hunt the elk. And with uh, the reduction of the elk populations following the introduction of the wolves, then other scavengers began to return, namely birds, ravens, and species of hawks. As the trees and bushes began to be able to return as well because there were fewer elk populations, and so then you begin to see songbirds who had vacated the area for almost 70 years, they began to return back to Yellowstone after the 70-year absence of the wolves. Uh, the bushes, particularly the berry bushes, they begin to flourish, and those along with the elk carcass carcasses begin to draw back in the bears into Yellowstone National Park. They prompt an increase in the bear populations, which had diminished. Now, wolves also hunt coyotes, and as the coyote population diminished to a healthier size because of the introduction of the wolves, rabbits and mice and even antelope began to repopulate the park in uh, populations that hadn't been seen in a generation and a half. Also, other birds of prey began to show back up, eagles and certain species of hawks. And because the aspen and the willow trees are able to flourish and grow to a right size, the beavers who had all but abandoned Yellowstone, they begin to come back as well. Because the beavers need trees of a certain size to create their dams. But the absence of these trees and the subsequent work of the beavers, the, the rivers had actually begun to flow more freely in the absence of wolves. And they, had a, uh, they caused massive erosion in the park. But now, because the trees were able to grow to mature sizes and the beavers were able to do their work, streams began to shift shape. They began to meander more, allowing biodiversity to flourish in places that require slower-moving streams. Erosion halted. The land was healed. Eight wolves changed the course of rivers. And that story of these, of these eight wolves and their population that returned, the, their, their growth, that's, that's a story too. But the story of these eight wolves is a part of a much larger story of what was going on in Yellowstone. A, a larger story of nature's restoration. And if anything, it's a story that reminds us that, that, that small things matter. And that even that a small story, when it takes place within a larger story, has tremendous impact. This morning we're going to start a, a series where we walk our way through the book of Ruth, an Old Testament book. In this story, we, uh, as we just read a few minutes ago, it's about a woman named uh, Ruth who is a widow woman who uh, begins her story in a place of famine, in a place of death and desolation, but whose story takes turn upon turn, and we will see eventually that her small story is taking place in a much larger story that impacts us even now provides a chance for us also to consider how our own stories, however large or small we may think them to be, are a part of a much larger story that's even bigger than us or even bigger than this moment. Jumping into Ruth 1, beginning in verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, they went to live for a while in a country of Moab. 
The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem and Judah, and they went to Moab to live there. Even in these first two verses, there's a, there's a setting. There's a setting of a place and a setting of a time. First, the time. It starts off in the days when the judges ruled. The judges, uh, this period of Israel's history was a tremendously low point in their history. Um, In the Judges, this is where we get the stories of Gideon and Deborah and Samson. But what was going on was this constant pattern among the people of God where they worshipped other gods, where they weren't staying true to the God that loved them and made them. There was this constant pattern of falling into sin and falling into uh, enslavement and then uh, crying out for liberation. There's this uh, judges cycle of uh, first they leave their own God. They don't worship the Lord anymore. They worship other idols. They fall into sin. And then in that, they get another uh, empire that entraps them and enslaves them. And then in that place of being intertwined with their sin and with those that would seek to oppress them, they cry out to the Lord, Lord, save us. The Lord sends a judge that will then liberate them and uh, lead them into salvation. Then once they would live in a place of safety and uh, flourishing, then they would fall back into the same pattern of trusting themselves and trusting other gods again. And it just cycled over and over. The book of Judges concludes in chapter 21, verse 11, with this telling line, in those days Israel, they had no king, and everyone did what they saw was fit. They didn't follow in the ways of the Lord. And our story is set during that particularly low point in Israel's history, in the days when the judges ruled. But there's also a a location, a geography to our story. It's in Bethlehem. They moved from Bethlehem to Moab. Elimelech and Naomi, they're they're Jews from Bethlehem in Nazareth and Judah. And they decide to go from Bethlehem to the land of Moab because there were famines in the land. This isn't a a great distance, but there there is geography and history. What they're doing is not just crossing from one place to another. They're actually crossing a culture, and they're heading into a place of deep hostility. Just real quickly, the history of Moab for a minute. There was a, a rivalry that, um, uh, that developed in the Old Testament between Abram, who would later become Abraham, and his nephew Lot. We see this, uh, we pick up the story in Genesis 13, verse 7. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, between your herders and mine, for we're close relatives. Is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go left, I'll go to the right. If you go right, I'll go to the left. A quarrel had emerged over sheep and where the sheep should graze. Lot goes to the right. Abram goes to the left. Lot settles in a land that would be named after his son called Moab. And Abraham settles in Judah and what will be Israel. And the quarreling between the Moabites and the Israelites, it continues and intensifies with each generation after that. The, the, the Bible chronicles their contentious history. They, they, they hate each other. There are stories of, of Moab uh, invading Israel, of Moab ridiculing Israel when they're conquered by other uh, empires. There's um, Israel in retaliation saying, you can't, when you come to Jerusalem, you can't worship in our temple. That so deep and so hated was the division that it lasted for a thousand years. 
And so when we come to this place where the story says they traveled from Bethlehem to Moab, this wasn't just we're going from one neighborhood to another. They're actually going from a place of where they've grown up to into a place of hostility. And this is the setting and the opening of our story. In the days of the judges, when things were not going well for us, there was a famine. There was death in the land. And so we traveled from our place to a place and to live among a people that's contested and that's hostile. Verse 3, we see that death begins to arrive. Death arrives into our story. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, he died, and she was left with two sons. And they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there for 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. In the ancient world, widowhood was disastrous for women. It put them in a place of both economic vulnerability, physical vulnerability. They had no political power and very little social standing. I want to pause here for a minute. As we navigate the book of Ruth, we're going to run into the cultural norms of the day, and it's going to give us pause and question. And, and I think there's a question for us as 21st century readers of the Bible. What do we do when we encounter cultural practices and cultural norms within the Bible and within scriptures that, um, that we would see condemned, but that they aren't? In, in Ruth, what we're going to see, a story that's the better part of 4,000 years old at this point, we're going to see deep patriarchy that we run into. Uh, it's a highly patriarchal culture where women are viewed as second-class citizens. We're going to see aspects and practices of courtship and marriage that are foreign to us and that we would want to resist even today. Aspects of the story that actually rightly trigger pain, particularly for those who've experienced domineering and abusive relationships. And I just want to name that and say that this is what we'll encounter as we walk through Ruth. Just a couple of things for us when this happens. First, it's right for us to name the tension and to name the rub that we run into when we see this in the scriptures. It's also right for us to understand the story and the culture into which the book was written. In understanding, we can often find ways that the biblical story is actually subverting the cultural norms of the day. But because it's wrapped in the cultural practices, we are repulsed by it and we can miss the subversion that's there. I think the last two things that we ought to do when we run into this is ask, what did the story mean to the original audience? How did they read this and how did they understand it? And then to ask ourselves, well, what does that mean for me today? So when we run into this, I just want you to, to walk through that, to, to name the tension that's there, to dig deeper into understanding it a bit more, to understand what it might have meant to the original audience and then say, well, what does it mean to me? Naomi in Moab, she lost a husband and sons. And she has these two Moabite daughters. And so she arrives in this place. She has fled famine. She's arrived in a place that has now only just given her death. This is an incredibly low and bitter point in the story. And in verse 6, we see when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. She's left a place because of famine. Ten years later in Moab, she hears that things are a bit better in Bethlehem, so she wants to return. She hears that there's a new day that's happened there, and so let me just return to a place that's more familiar with me. Let me return back to family that's in that place. 
But she has these two daughters-in-law. So in verse 8, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. And may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and they said to her, We will go back with you to your people. The plan for Naomi is for her to return back to her family, but these two Moabite daughters, she's, she's releasing them. She says, no, go back to, to your families. Don't, don't come with me. I know what it's like to live in a place that's hostile toward you, and I don't want that for you. What Naomi is giving to these two daughters is, is, is actually a severe mercy. You can hear throughout it the ways that they weep, the ways that they hold each other, the ways that they don't want to part ways. It's evidence of a deep love between these women. Naomi encourages Orpah and Ruth to return to their families. Orpah takes her up on the offer and returns back to her family, but Naomi says no. Uh, Ruth says no, I'll choose you, Naomi. Ruth clung to Naomi. Verse 14, at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to Naomi, the word, the word clung there in Hebrew is, is the word debak, and it means to cling, <laughs> right? It means to cleave or to keep close. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 2, verse 24. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and debak to his wife. She, she clung. She held fast to them. This Moabite woman held fast to this Israelite woman, and thousand a thousand years of tearing apart couldn't keep them apart. She clung. Verse sixteen. But Ruth replied to Naomi, "Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay." Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. Abby Odio, a pastor in Seattle, she comments about this passage. She notes that Ruth doesn't know what's up ahead, presumably having never been to Bethlehem. She knows the history, though. She doesn't know any idea of what the answers are for Naomi or what's, uh, what's around the bend or what their lives will be like together, what sort of hope is up ahead, but they still cling to one another nevertheless. What Ruth is demonstrating to Naomi and to us, by the way, is that um, any transformation that might happen, it begins when there's a clinging. Any sort of changes in the course of human history, it begins with debacle. When, when, when lives are intertwined with the lives of each other, Ruth's actions actually foreshadow the actions of Jesus in John 1. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us when Jesus intertwined his lives with ours. He, 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 he debacked us. He clung to us. And, and what she is doing is she's saying, look, you, you, there is, a, there, there is a, 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 a unity between you and I. And Ruth's historic act, she's actually inviting us into this same pattern of uh, living. Because the thing is that change doesn't happen at a distance. Whatever are the things to which you find yourself called, 
Those of you that, that, that want to labor or have a heart or a passion uh, to address issues of, uh, of poverty, you, you can't address that at a distance. What does it look like for you to intertwine your lives with the lives of those who are most ground down and affected by that? For those of you that work in areas of racial justice or economic justice, you can't do that at a distance. What does it look like for you to intertwine your lives with those that are being ground down by systemic injustices? For those, of you, for those of us that want to care for this very neighborhood, we can't do it at a distance, and we can't only do it when we're gathered here in this cafeteria. What does it look like for us to intertwine our lives with the lives of those that call this place home? You see, what Ruth is stirring in us is an invitation for us to debauch with others, to say, your issues are my issues, your problems are mine, your joys are mine, and so my life will be intertwined with yours. The question for us today is with whom are you intertwining your life? Who are you saying yes to? Who are you saying, I- I'll go with you? Don't know the road ahead. Don't know what's up ahead or around the bend, but I'm with you. Your people, my people. We're together on this. This is the invitation, I think, for, from Ruth to us in chapter 1. What's interesting is that Ruth's commitment, this, this single commitment of saying, I'm saying yes to you, Noemi. A Moabite to a Judean across a thousand-year rift, that what begins to happen in that single moment, that small story, is that the glaciers of violence and domination and division, they begin to melt slowly by slowly. You don't see it at first, but it shows up. What's set in motion by Ruth in this small story was now the wheels of a much larger story of redemption. And what was torn apart in Abram's and Lot's parting now has the hope of being reconciled for the first time in 20 generations. Fast forward just a quick bit to the end of Ruth, the last verses. I know whoever's preaching on chapter 4, I'm stealing some of your thunder. It's okay, there'll still be some left for you. But here's the thing. In the last four chapters of Ruth, it says this, essentially that Boaz is the father of Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, he picks up on this in chapter 1 in Jesus' genealogy. He says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David, who is the ancestor of Jesus. Not only do we get a peek into the reconciliation of Moab and Judah, more than what was lost in the Judean hills between an uncle and a nephew, but what was torn apart in the garden when sin entered the world, it now has the possibility of being clung together, of joined together of you and me. And this small story of of two widowed women, a story born in famine and division and death, but because of an act of clinging and compassion and commitment, the hinges of redemptive history begin to swing open. Let us never underestimate the power of small things and small stories in the larger story of what God is doing in the world. Ruth begins with famine and death and a journey. But the end of chapter 1, I think somebody needs to hear this. The end of chapter 1, though. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. 
her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. You might find yourself in a spot where you're looking around and you're like, all I see is famine and death and hostility. The barley harvest is coming. It's on its way, friends. Whatever is the place that you find yourself in, take joy in Ruth's story and knowing it won't always be this way. That there are others that need to come around you and cling to you and remind you that there is a season coming when the barley harvest will begin. And that you're not alone. And that you're not just left to death and famine and just wandering from one place to another. But that there is a place, there is a community, there is a God who ordains the growth and the harvest of flourishing in your life. The barley harvest was beginning. I don't know, maybe that was just an encouragement to me, but more than anything else, what I want you to know is that above all is that God clings to you. He debucks with you. He says, you are not just my people, you are my child. And in Ruth's story, we see the foreshadowing of that great, large, redemptive work in our lives and in the world. Let me pray for us. Come, Holy Spirit. Spirit, we, we need your presence. We need your word. We need your life towards us, God. Lord, we thank you for this testimony from our foremother, Ruth. It displays for us what it is to, to join her life with the life of someone else for the sake of your work in the world. God, we thank you that you remind us that you take our lives, that you take stories big and small, and that you bend them towards your story of redemption in the world. God, we thank you for your reminders that that we we look steely-eyed and sober-minded at the famine around us. But we also anticipate the beginning of the barley harvest. Anticipation of new seasons of life with you. God, I pray over my friends that are in this room right now. God, I pray your, your, your presence in the midst of their own sorrow, in the presence of the, of the death of loved ones, of the death of futures or hopes that they may be walking through, God, the famines that they find themselves in, God, I pray that you would meet them there, that you would send some to embrace them, to care for them, to wrap their arms around them. God, I pray um, that we would look at Ruth's story and the ways that she follows you even at times unaware, and that it would stir in us confidence of the ways that we can follow you too. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.